joining us this morning from your living room or your, maybe it's your patio or even your, your bedroom. I tell you what, I cannot wait until next week to be able to see many of your faces when we regather for worship just outside, God willing, if the weather is good. Uh, be, uh, be with us tomorrow. We're going to send out an email and have a video to walk through all the details uh, of what that's going to look like so that we can do it responsibly and safely. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 20. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 18. We're continuing our walk through the Gospel of Luke together. And uh, before we jump into this passage, I want to point out that it is very easy for us to kind of fall down one of two very slippery slopes when it comes to how we think about the character of God. On one side, there's the slippery slope of thinking about God in the sense that he is all about judgment. People who overemphasize the judgment of God, they tend to be very harsh, very unforgiving. They preach fire and brimstone. They're all about truth with very little love. They talk often about the coming judgment of God, but they do it in a manipulative way. I think of the street preacher that that is very harsh and with his megaphone telling everybody that they're, they're going to hell. They tend to be very legalistic and condemning of anybody that has a different thought or a different idea than they have. Now, on the other side, there's another slippery slope of thinking God is only about grace. And those who overemphasize God's grace, they tend to erase the doctrine of hell altogether They don't want to offend anybody, and so they avoid words like sin and repentance. They tend to look at the Bible as more of a, like this is our guide rather than our authority. They tend to look at Jesus as a counselor or some, like maybe a a genie in a bottle that gives them their wishes or a role model rather than one who saves us from our sin and our rebellion and really requires full allegiance to him. In today's passage, though, Jesus brings both the the judgment of God and the grace of God together in one parable. And let me give you some context of what's going on. Remember, we are in the last week before Jesus is going to go to the cross. And everything's kind of slowing down right now. There's a lot of details given. Jesus has come into Jerusalem. He's created quite a stir. He's really seen some tension. There's a whole lot of tension between him and the religious leaders. And because of that, things are going to go crazy here in the next few days. He's been teaching in the temple, and the people all around him are hanging on every word. But these religious leaders, they're in the back. They're scheming. They're plotting. How can we get rid of this troublemaker, Jesus? And so, They come to Jesus, and we saw this a couple weeks ago. They come to Jesus with these tricky questions. Last week, he answers their tricky question with a tricky question of his own that they can't even answer. And then he follows that up with this parable, the parable of the wicked tenants. It's a parable that's found in three out of the four Gospels, which tells me that God really wants us to understand this parable. He's trying to teach us here. And we know in verse 9 that Jesus is telling this parable to the people, to the people that have been hanging on his every word. But he's speaking loud enough so that the Pharisees that are in the back and these religious leaders that are in the back scheming against him, 
they can hear also. And in fact, down in verse 19, we see that they not only heard it, they perceived that the parable was actually about them, and it infuriates them. Now, we need to understand that this parable is not just for them. It's also for us. We need to hear the warning in this parable as much as they did. And so let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Father, your grace has been so evident to us. Your faithfulness has been evident to us. And we confess that often we do not take your word seriously. We confess that often we're not obedient and we're apathetic towards you. And so I pray right now that you would recalibrate our hearts. I pray right now that you would open up our spiritual eyes to see the glory that's in your word, that we would honor you, not just with our lips, but with our lives. I pray that we would be moved and changed by your words, that we would, we would be a good steward of the gift that you've given us and the gospel, and that we would take this warning seriously. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, pick up with me chapter 20 of Luke, starting in verse 9, the parable of the wicked tenants. And he, Jesus, began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully. And he sent him away empty-handed. And he sent a, yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and he said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. And so this parable would have connected with these people that Jesus is talking to right away. It's not a hard parable to understand. Often Jesus spoke in parables to hide the meaning of the parable from those whose hearts had not been opened to understand it. But this parable, evidently, everybody understood it. Even the religious leaders understood the meaning of this parable. It was typical for a landowner back then to lend out his vineyard, to entrust his vineyard to tenants while he was away. The landlord in this story, of course, is God. It represents God. And the tenants are the Jews. This is God's chosen people who are entrusted with the law of God and the covenants of God, the promises of God, and the responsibility of representing God to the rest of the world. And so the servants of the landlord 
then represents, that, that, that's all the prophets that God sent to Israel. Prophet after prophet. And of course, the son of the landlord represents Jesus himself. And so the Jews have a long history of rejecting God's prophets. Jesus had mentioned this actually earlier in chapter 13 of Luke when he laments over Jerusalem. He calls Jerusalem the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Back in the Old Testament, God told Isaiah, I want you to go to a people and preach to a people that will not listen to you. In fact, Jewish tradition says that Isaiah was actually sawed in half while the false prophets laughed at him. Jeremiah, likewise, was, was called to preach and warn Israel of a coming judgment, and they cursed him and beat him and threw him into prison. Elijah was hunted by Ahab and Jezebel. And I could go on and on. For hundreds of years, we see this pattern with Israel. And now Jesus, the beloved Son of God, comes, and they're about to crucify him. At the He's going to be crucified at, at the hands of the Romans, but it's because the Jew, Jews hate him. And Jesus is lovingly warning these religious leaders that God's patience will not last forever with them. He calls himself the cornerstone, the, the stone that all the other stones are built upon and rely upon. It's the stone that the builders, the Jews, have rejected, and now it's a, it's a stone of judgment. They're either going to trip over it and be destroyed, or it's going to come down on them and crush them. So there's three lessons that I want us to look at and, and see from this passage. So if you're taking notes, number one is this. We need to steward the responsibility God has given us as a church. We need to steward the responsibility that God has given us as a church. Think about the Israelites. They were given an amazing gift, a responsibility by God. They were chosen by God. Out of all the nations in the world, they were chosen by God to receive the law, to receive the covenant, and they were supposed to represent God to the rest of the world. He had freed them from slavery, brought them into the promised land, but instead of stewarding this responsibility, they ran from God and they ran and worshiped other gods. And God sent messenger after messenger after messenger, prophet after prophet, to call them to repentance, to call them to change course and come back to God. But they rejected every prophet one by one. And as the church, we also, think about it, Mercy Hill, we have been given a gift in the gospel. And we have a responsibility to steward that gift. Peter says this in his letter, 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen race, talking about the church, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. And so like the Israelites, we have been chosen by God to represent him. We, we have been given this gift. We are a royal priesthood. And so we are supposed to, a priest represents God. And we're, we're chosen to mediate God's blessings to the world by proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ to them, teaching them to obey, baptizing them. We're supposed to go to the nations with this message. That's our, that's our mission that we've been given. It's a gift that we've been given. We need to steward it well. Let me try to illustrate this. And so my kids and my wife have been really begging me for months now for uh, a dog, a puppy dog. 
And they finally, eventually kind of wore me down. And so around Mother's Day, uh, I told Kim that we, we could go ahead and get a dog. Which, by the way, I didn't realize how difficult that would be right now because I think with lockdown, everybody and their brother wants a dog. And so we looked all over the place. Eventually, this past Tuesday, Kim found somebody that had a golden retriever that uh, somebody had already claimed this golden retriever, but they, they never showed up. And so we just happened to call at the right time. And so we drove two and a half hours to go pick up this dog. We named him Moose. And part of my willingness to get this dog, though, is because I wanted to give a gift to my children that they would have some significant responsibility to take with it. It's been almost 20 years since we've had a puppy in our house. And I still remember how much work it was to have a puppy. And that's why it's taken 20 years before they've, I've been convinced to have another puppy in my house. But it's been pretty cool. Over the last few days, uh, the, the kids have really stewarded that responsibility rather well. Uh, they've taken turns feeding Moose and playing with Moose and making sure Moose gets outside and gets exercise and they've bathed him and they've slowly started to train him. And I, I haven't once had to bring out my like drill sergeant voice with them and, and tell them what they need to do. I haven't had to coerce them with any kind of rewards or punishments if they don't take the responsibility seriously. I've, I've barely even had to remind them about what they need to do with Moose. And I recognize we're in the honeymoon stage right now, and that may change over time. But they have stewarded their responsibility well because they recognize the gift that has been given to them, and they want to take care of it. Now think about this. As the church, we have been given an infinitely greater gift than a puppy dog. We've been given the good news. We've been given, given eternal life. We've been granted forgiveness and be freed from the, the penalty of sin and the power of sin. We've been born again into a living hope. We've been adopted into God's family. We've been promised an inheritance that will, that will never fade away, that's imperishable, that's undefiled. We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit and been gifted for ministry and been and been given a mission and a purpose in life. We've been given an amazing gift to steward. And if we fail to steward this gift, are we any better than the Israelites of the Old Testament? Last fall, we talked about, we did a whole sermon series on who's your one, and we challenged you to start really thinking about, okay, who is somebody in my life that needs to hear the message of the gospel, that they don't yet have a relationship with Christ, they're not connected to a church, and we challenge you to start praying for that individual, and then start looking for opportunities to invite them, to invest in them, to care for them in practical ways, to, to ultimately share the gospel with them. Well, I encourage you, recommit to that. If you've kind of gotten away from that, I, I pray that during this season right now, that you would take that seriously, and you, you take opportunities. You look for opportunities to invite them to come to, to worship. Even next Sunday, they, we can start gathering together. That you would look for opportunities to say, hey, look, I would love to study a book of the Bible with you. Would you be willing to do that? Maybe, maybe you look for opportunities to say, hey, look, we're, we're going to have MC. Uh, even if it's on Zoom right now, you can join us right now, and uh, God willing, we'll be gathering together in person again here soon. But look for opportunities to invite them and invest in them. And I would, I would challenge our MCs this week to 
maybe brainstorm and think through, okay, what are some ways that we can get creative during this season to share the gospel with our neighbors and our friends and those who desperately need to hear the message of hope that we have, this gift that we are called to steward. Let's be a church that stewards the gift of the gospel well until Christ comes back or our final breath. A second lesson that I want us to get from this passage is that we need to give Jesus the honor due his name. We need to give Jesus the honor due his name. Notice in this parable that the landowner, final, his final attempt to get the tenants to do what, they, what they've been called to do, to uphold their responsibility, the last thing he does, he finally says, okay, enough is enough. I'm going to send my own son. Not just another servant, not just any son, but my beloved son. And surely... Just his presence will cause them to be convicted of what they've been doing and turn directions and do what they've been called to do. Jesus is making it very clear that he is distinct from the other messengers that have been sent by God. He has God's blood coursing through his veins. Jesus is not simply a prophet or a good teacher. We can't just look at him simply as a role model or a counselor, he's God. He's Lord of lords, he's king of kings, he's the creator and the sustainer of the universe. He's our savior, our redeemer. He's the prince of peace, he's the Messiah, he's our living hope, he's our righteousness. We should never take that for granted. The Israelites, they missed this, they ignored all the signs, they were blinded by their own pride, they were blinded by their own ambition. In this parable, the evil tenants, they're motivated to kill the landlord's son so that they could steal his inheritance. And so Jesus is calling out these religious leaders and he's exposing how corrupt their hearts had become. And as the church, of course, we're not going to outright go and try to kill Christ, if that were even possible. But if we're not careful, we will turn Christ into, we'll recreate Christ into our likeness. When we recreate Jesus into what we want him to be rather than what God's word has revealed him to be, it may not be viciously attempting to kill him, but we actually might be doing something even worse. We end up undermining his authority and dishonoring him in a much craftier way. See, there's a strong movement within Christianity that is trying to, it's attempting to create a more palatable Jesus, a Jesus that is easier to believe uh, in, the, in the context that we're in right now, in this modern context. This Jesus it simply wants you to live a decent life and simply doesn't want you to be sad. And it, it's a Jesus who really doesn't want to intrude on your life with this Jesus, you can enjoy all the blessings of God without ever having to submit to him as Lord. And so, no, we're not killing Jesus. We're just trying to dethrone him. It's kind of like what happens when a, a president loses uh, an election. Okay, so like a sitting president loses an election. That, that time between the election in November where they've lost the election and the inauguration that happens on January 20th, that time period, he still has the title of president. He still has the, the title of commander-in-chief, but he's all but lost 
any kind of influence or power that he once had. In fact, we've got a name for that president. We call him a lame duck president, which I'm sure they love that nickname, right? Listen to me. Jesus Christ does not want to be a lame duck Messiah in our lives. Let's be a church that honors him in everything that we do. Let's be a church that listens to his word and is obedient to his word even when it's uncomfortable. Let's be a church that honors him by depending on him in prayer rather than our own abilities. Let's be a church that honors him by doing things that cause our hearts to grow in adoration to, to him. Let's, let's be a church that constantly is reading and meditating and praying and singing God's word together. Let's be a church that honors him by proclaiming the gospel without fear. Let's be a church that goes on mission and is willing to sacrifice for that mission. Today, I would love for you to, to talk with your family over lunch and, and discuss, okay, what is one way as a family we can do a better job of honoring Christ together? The final lesson that I want to get from this passage is this that we need to lovingly warn others of the danger of testing the patience of God. Let me say that again. We need to lovingly warn others of the danger of testing the patience of God. And so Jesus highlights the patience of God in this parable. I mean, it would have been shocking to those listening to Jesus during this, this parable of this, this landowner that continued to send his servants to these rebellious tenants. There's no way a landowner in that day would have been so gracious, so patient. After the first servant came back to him and came back empty-handed and beaten, that landowner would have been furious. He would have probably went to his own land uh, himself and, and dealt very harshly with these rebellious tenants. But shockingly, the landowner who represents God in this parable gives the rebellious tenants chance after chance after chance to do the right thing. And when then finally he's willing even to send his own beloved son in hopes that, that, that his very presence would convict them of what they've been doing. And so this parable, this parallels, this parable, it parallels what God did with the Israelites throughout the Old Testament. I mean, that was the patience of God in the Old Testament to lovingly, give them chance after chance of sending prophet after prophet and warning them to repent and turn back to the Lord. And finally, he sends his own beloved son. And unfortunately, they reject every one of them. And so Jesus does not shy away from warning them of their coming destruction, that the patience of God is coming to an end with them. I'm going to crush you, he says, and I'm going to give your inheritance to others. This is not the first time that Jesus has sent out a warning of God's future judgment either. In fact, Jesus talks about hell more than anybody else in the Bible. In fact, he talks about God's wrath over twice as much as he talks about God's love. And yet we tend to very much, very often shy away from talking about the wrath of God. In fact, we often treat the wrath of God like a pimple on somebody's forehead. You know, you see it there, you know it's there, you know it's in the Bible, but we don't want to embarrass God by talking about it. That's often how we treat the wrath of God. We've accepted this idea that the doctrine of the wrath of God is like taboo. 
And maybe it's because we've come to this belief that God is really ultimately just here to serve us. Or maybe it's because we've pitted God's wrath against God's love and we can't seem to see how they would work together. read an article recently, theologian Tony Lane. He makes a really strong argument that God's wrath is actually an expression of God's love. Now follow me with this, okay? He points out that the opposite of love is actually not wrath. The opposite of love is actually indifference. You just don't care. That's the opposite of love. He argues that there is no true love without wrath. And in fact, wrath is required. If if you really love somebody, there's going to be wrath that's part of an expression of that love. And so for God's love to be righteous love, for it to be a just love, wrath is going to be there. Otherwise, his love just degenerates into sentimentality. This is the same thing Paul's really talking, he talks about this in Romans. Romans chapter 12, verse 9. He says, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. And so to abhor something is to hate something. Did you catch that, that Paul uses the word love and a word that means hate in the same breath? He's saying if you really love God, you're going to hate what is evil. Think about it this way. How would a husband who dearly loves his wife react if he finds that his wife has been cheating on him? How would love respond in that kind of situation? It wouldn't be indifference, I guarantee that. I would imagine it would be brokenheartedness, but also mixed in with that would be a jealous anger. See, true love is never indifferent. In fact, failure to hate evil implies a deficiency with your love. If you see a child being abused, and, it, and you just can ignore it and it doesn't bring any kind of feeling to you? If you've seen a child abused and it doesn't create a, an anger inside of you, that's a failure to love. And so unless God detests sin and detests evil with a great loathing, he cannot be a God of love. The wrath of God is an expression of his love. And you see it come together in the cross. The cross is where God's love and God's wrath come together. They unite. On the cross, Jesus shows us how much he loves us, willing to go through hell for us, willing to die for the the sins that we've committed. But also on the cross, Jesus shows you how much he hates sin. He wasn't willing to let it go unpunished. And the more that we come to understand God's hatred of sin and his wrath towards sin, the more that we're going to appreciate his love towards us. And so as the church, we've got an obligation to love God and to love others enough to warn them if they're in rebellion against God, God's patience with them will one day run out. If somebody you love is heading blindly towards a cliff and their destruction is imminent, you're not just going to wave to them and watch them as they run by towards the cliff. No, you're going to do whatever it takes. You're going you're to cry out to them and call them and beg them, look up, stop, turn around. And so let me ask you a tough question today. 
Who in your life right now is heading off a cliff? Who in your life right now do you need to love enough to warn them that when they're in rebellion against God, God's patience will not last forever. And they need to turn, turn towards the Lord. You think about it though, this is what makes the gospel good news, is that we don't have to run off that cliff. This is what makes the gospel good news, that Jesus has given a way to escape the wrath of God that we deserve because of our rebellion. You don't have to spend eternity under the wrath of God if you will receive God's Son as your Savior and your Lord and your treasure. Why is that? It's because God loved the world so much that he was willing to send his Son to absorb the wrath of God that we deserve for all of those who would find their refuge in him. And so... Where's your refuge? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ to save you from your rebellion and from your sin? Let's pray. Father, again, we recognize that often we are apathetic towards your word. We are apathetic towards the warnings that you give us and I pray right now that your spirit would open up our eyes, that we would see that there is a cliff in front of many people that we love, and they are headed straight for it. And I pray that we would love them enough, that you would infiltrate our hearts with your loving spirit and give us enough love in our hearts to warn them that your patience will not last forever. I pray that we would honor you, not with just our lips, but with our lives. And I pray that we would steward the gift that you have given us in the gospel. We desperately need you to do that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.